September the 11th, 2001, is a date that will live long in infamy. Four passenger airlines were hijacked and used to cause unfathomable atrocities. 2,996 people died in the immediate fallout, with 6,000 injured, and untold people died many months and years later from issues caused by the attacks. It is, to date, the single deadliest terrorist attack in human history. A record, I hope, is never broken. By September 12th, the world had changed forever. Gone was the optimism each new day brought, replaced by a constant climate of fear. Day-to-day tasks felt like an act of defiance against the perceived threat that terrorism posed. While the initial attack was over in a matter of hours, the lasting scars were deeper, and to this day, have never really healed. In the aftermath of the attacks, military action led to more bloodshed, and some 18 years later, we still have a constant military presence in Afghanistan and several other Middle Eastern countries. Across the world, we seemed more divided as people, and despite initial sympathies over the 9-11 attacks, there was a growing anti-American sentiment brewing due to the notion that the military response overseas was heavy-handed and unfair. While we've recovered somewhat from the initial shock of the attacks, during the military occupations, many soldiers and journalists were kidnapped and, horrifyingly, were executed on video, the footage uploaded to the internet, shocking and terrifying the world. The cinema was no longer the scariest place to be. Daily news was more horrific and disturbing than anything showing on the screen at the time. Not because films had become tamer, but because what the 24-hour stream of rolling news was showing was brutal, graphic and, most worryingly, real. As humans, fear is a concept we use to keep ourselves safe. We avoid fires for fear of getting burned, stay away from the edges of cliffs to keep from falling, and try our best to avoid situations which may cause us harm. As horror fans, however, fear is what draws us in. We enjoy the adrenaline rush that fear causes because no matter how terrified we are, we know, to quote Last House on the Left, it's only a movie. In this week's episode, we'll look at how these awful events influenced the generation of horror storytellers to bring in a new wave of extremity to the cinema. My name is Rich O'Brien, and you're listening to Popcorn and Power Tools, a podcast about how history changed horror, and horror made history. In the late 90s to early 2000s, horror was at a strange crossroads. Horror had become mainstream and found its niche as a genre aimed at a younger audience than ever before. Slashers such as Scream had brought attention to the genre's tropes and commonalities, while also increasing the production values. Slickly produced fare such as I Know What You Did Last Summer, The Faculty and Cry Wolf 
toned down the gore and ramped up the comedy, sex appeal and wittiness to better suit the younger but more switched on audience. The screams and valentines of the late 90s instead focused on young and beautiful cast members, delivering witty one-liners and critiques of the genre with as minimal amount of bloodshed as possible. This is mainly so they could secure ratings such as PG-13 in the US and 15 over here in the UK. The box office was flooded with sequel after sequel. Mainstream stars such as Courtney Cox and Sarah Michelle Gellar became scream queens and horror had fully transitioned to the mainstream. Companies such as Lionsgate and Dimension essentially became date movie factories, producing these slick but cheap-to-produce horrors and equally cheap comedies, often with interchangeable casts, to appease their early teens audience. While these films relished in poking fun at genre tropes, truth be told, they were still carbon copies of the slashes that preceded them even if this new wave of horror tried to hide that behind slick production and a knowing wink to the audience. 70s and 80s slashes, on the other hand, relished in creative kills, gallons of blood and nudity, and were blissfully ignorant to their cliché-ridden nature, often cheaply shot with no-name casts by first-time directors. These films rarely enjoyed wide cinematic releases, Instead, living on showings in small theatres before gaining a wider audience on VHS, many becoming cult classics years down the line on DVD. It's these early gore fests that influenced directors post 9-11. As genre fatigue kicked in and the teen horror boom died down, horror again slipped back to the shadows. After 9-11, the news made many of those PG-13 wave films seem silly and irrelevant. When you can turn the TV on, or your computer, and see the real horror that humans are inflicting on each other, the idea of watching a sanitised version of that doesn't really seem that scary, nor worthwhile. The polished teen horror of the 90s and early 2000s, while having some absolute gems, The faculty, Final Destination and The Craft spring to mind immediately, had started to become stale and formulaic, just like the films that they so often critiqued. And as box office returns began to diminish, genre fatigue finally set in. In the post 9-11 world, we as cinema goers have become desensitised to this softened take on horror. And, for a time, mainstream horror became a forgotten concept. Real life was far scarier than these movies, and when all that's left is light comedy and an attractive cast, well, there's not much left to entice audiences in. Bustling away from the mainstream were directors who were disenfranchised by the state of the genre, who had grew up with the gritty and unsanitised pictures of the 70s and 80s, and who were keen to tell stories that drew on the very real fears of the world. Eli Roth had released the minor sleeper hit Cabin Fever in 2002, 
turning a budget of $1.5 million into a $30.5 million cult success. It's, at its heart, a loving homage to the bloody silliness of Evil Dead 2, the isolation of Deliverance and the effects work of Tom Savini. Cabin Fever is a loving throwback to the blood-soaked, low-budget grindhouse of the 70s, a stark and gory reaction to the over-polished 90s teen fair, and audiences loved it. Despite wearing its influences on its sleeve, it still felt refreshing compared to the films that preceded it. While the humour is crude, the gore graphic, and the sexual overtones of some scenes are incredibly close to the bone, Roth became a hot prospect amongst Hollywood studios, looking to reboot their ailing franchises. At one time, Roth was approached to reboot Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Last House on the Left, and The Fog, but upon advice from a friend, Quentin Tarantino, Roth decided to make something new, bold, and shocking. Post-September 11th, many people had been exposed, accidentally or out of curiosity, to genuine examples of torture showcased on the news or on seedy video streaming sites. While these videos were primarily terrorist propaganda, rumours began to circulate of sites hosting this sort of content as entertainment. Roth had heard rumours of murder tourist sites on the internet, offering the wealthy an opportunity to travel somewhere remote and live out their most depraved murderous fantasies. For a price. It was this idea that birthed 2006's Hostel. Originally conceived as a found footage mockumentary in the style of Cannibal Holocaust, Hostel eventually became a more traditional film, focusing on three friends travelling across Europe, trying to meet girls, party and have a good time, who fall prey to a murder-tourist company, the Elite Hunting Club. For those who haven't seen the film, well, let's just say things don't pan out well for our young leads. What follows over the next 94 minutes are scenes of torture, murder, and general nastiness. Blowtorched eyes, sliced Achilles tendons, and a fair slice of gratuitous nudity. It's a deliberately shocking piece designed to provoke a strong response from its audience. An audience who, at the time, were incredibly overexposed to real-world depravity. Personally, I don't see Hostel as an incredibly well-made nor well-written piece of cinema, but where I do think it excels is in its way of resonating with the disenfranchised post-9-11 audience. Hostel is subversive in many ways and defies audience expectations, even despite every piece of marketing focusing on the gore, torture and intensity of the film. Yes, Hostel is gory, but at times it's delivered in a slapstick way. Johan's death, for example, comes from him slipping up on vomit and blood and slicing his leg open. While gory, the slapstick, banana peel moment is blackly comic, hearkening back to the goofier humour of Roth's cabin fever. 
the opening half of the film actually has more in common with movies such as Eurotrip or the teen sex comedies of the 80s than it does with the works of extreme cinema pioneers Toby Hooper, Rigato Diodato or Takashi Miike. This despite the latter two actually playing roles in the series. The first 45 minutes are deliberately filled with a wave of reckless frivolity. Our protagonists partying, drinking and taking drugs, full of optimism for what their next hedonistic hotspot would have waiting for them, lulling the audience into a false sense of security. There's a looming sense of unease, sure, but it's always followed with a moment of brevity, distracting the audience just a little away from what's to come. So how does Hostel speak to its audience? When it comes to our cast, Paxton acts as our everyman character and main protagonist. He's flawed but relatable. Josh represents our audience's hopes and naivety before 9-11, while the character early represents the common stereotypical viewpoint that all Europeans are fun-loving drunken sex addicts. While Josh and Early become casualties, it's Paxton's arc which carries much of the audience pathos. Paxton is young, optimistic and living his life day to day, blissfully ignorant to what may come his way and how the outside world may perceive him. He represents the pre-9-11 attitude of the audience, full of hope and excitement for the future, much like Josh. In the latter half of the film, after his friends are killed, however, Paxton represents our audience after the terror attacks in New York and after the military invasion of the Middle East, driven by defiance, determination and grit. Rather than being fueled by optimism, he is instead driven by a desire for revenge. Although he ends up victorious, he'll never be the same man he was before these horrible events, a sentiment which is mirrored by both our world and the audience. Xenophobia is another key aspect Roth exploits to engage with the audience. Roth utilises the audience's natural distrust of cultures different to their own, and the stereotypes that they use to enforce that viewpoint. Europe has always been a popular holiday destination for college teens in America. Some find it appealing for its culture and architecture, while others are drawn to the perceived seedier aspects of the region, be that legalised marijuana or prostitution. It's the latter which draws our protagonists in, much as our audience have been drawn in by the seedier and more sensational aspects of the movie. Our leads recklessly pursue the next party or opportunity to hook up with girls without really thinking that each train journey or flight takes them to an entirely different culture with differing social norms or rules. They react brashly and aggressively when faced with the Dutch businessman on the train, mainly because he touches Paxton's leg, despite this being more of a cultural faux pas as opposed to anything sexual. They view cultures in the most general of stereotypes, 
heading to Slovakia because they're told all women there are beautiful and love Americans, never really considering that there may well be people there that don't fit their blinkered viewpoint. The film subverts this stereotype later on when they reach Slovakia and discover that actually, Americans aren't really popular, except as a commodity for the elite hunting club to offer their clients. In the early scenes of the movie, what we later learn to be our antagonists, openly celebrate Josh and Paxton being American, while in the latter half, the term American is delivered as you would an insult or slur, directly mirroring the changing attitude towards America post 9-11. Interestingly, when Paxton encounters an actual American murder tourist near the film's climax, Roth turns the idea of stereotypes on its head, showing the audience the outside world's view of many Americans. He's wealthy, brash, obnoxious, and happy to travel the globe killing people just because he can. In turning this stereotype on its head, Hostel points the finger directly at the audience, who have, for the most part, only been afraid of the Europeans in the film. The interesting and most poignant aspect of the film is that the monster isn't some faceless killer or ghoul. It's an entire group of people. Yes, the Dutch businessman Natalia, Svetlana and Alexei act as our main antagonists, but they're only the faces that we can truly directly look at. It's the elite hunting club itself that's the actual real malevolent entity. Much like killing Osama Bin Laden didn't solve terrorism, Paxton killing the Dutch businessman doesn't really solve the wider problem, nor stop the elite hunting club from existing. Despite the film's main selling point being its gore and extremity, much of the fear comes from the idea that we, as an audience, aren't as perfect or as well-liked as we may perceive. Hostel was predated by, in my opinion, the vastly superior Saw, another film tarred with the torture porn brush. Saw is a taut thriller with a singular antagonist peppered with moments of gore and brutality, and much like Hostel, it resonates best with a post 9-11 audience. You only have to look at Jigsaw communicating through pre-recorded tapes, much as Osama Bin Laden did, killing people who he perceives to be immoral in incredibly brutal ways to see a parallel to the events of the time. Where a saw keeps these aspects as subtext, it's hostile that wears them all on its sleeve, and while a less cohesive and slightly brasher movie I feel that Roth created something that speaks directly to the audience in a graphic and unflinching way. Both films are a reaction to the time they were created. They scare and shock audiences because they prey on the real climate of fear that loomed over the Western world. When an audience is desensitised to violence in the real world, 
they'll often find solace in watching something they know is purely fake. The audience took their frustrations and fears into the cinema, safe in the knowledge that for once, the depravity and inhumanity they were watching, no matter how believable, was at least only a movie. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Popcorn and Power Tools. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review, subscribe, and tell a friend. It helps the show reach new ears. But either way, I'm just incredibly grateful for your support. If you're interested in what I'm doing, you can find me on Instagram, where I post reviews and behind-the-scenes footage. My profile there is Popcorn Power Tools. I also have reviews and articles up on nerdod.com. My most recent review on there is of the wonderful Mandy. Have a read and let me know what you think. Did you enjoy it as much as me? If you have any questions or suggestions, please feel free to email me at popcornandpowertools at gmail.com. I love hearing from you all and I do my best to get back to everyone. Thanks so much for listening. I've been Rich O'Brien, and this has been Popcorn and Power Tools. Stay spooky and take care. It's a scary place out there.